1: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Jacqueline Friedland about her debut novel, Trouble the Water. As in my previous interview, the current book is set in the U.S. South, here at Charleston, South Carolina, about 20 years before the beginning of the Civil War. Hero and heroine are not, however, Southerners, but Britons, brought to Charleston by disparate paths that the author and I will explore. But as it happens, this novel, too, begins with the destruction of a house, in this case the house of Douglas Elling. Charleston, South Carolina, 1842. Douglas urged his horse onward at a feverish pace, gripped by panic that his wife might have been taken, or his daughter. The evening's vacant streets worked in his favor as the animal tore across the cobblestones, racing furiously toward his estate. The horse huffed and spat, sweating into the moonlight, as Douglas struggled to focus on speed rather than on his dread. Rounding the corner onto Lightbourne Street, where candlelight emanated from the windows of quiet houses, he had the sudden thought that it couldn't be today. Whatever that distasteful man, Wilson Bly, meant by the threat, Douglas told himself, it wouldn't be this very same day when he had only just been alerted to the possibility of danger. He began to relax slightly, feeling added relief now that he was so close to home. He eased up on the horse, slowing to a trot and patting the animal's hide in recognition of its exertion. He and the horse continued east at a lighter pace, and Douglas inhaled deeply, trying to calm his racing heart. As the humid air filled his lungs, he caught the scent of smoke, sudden and sour. His alarm returned afresh, beastly in its force, digging his heels into the horse's sides. He urged the animal to resume its breakneck pace, They barreled across the remainder of Lightbourne, and Douglas began to detect the din of disaster, shouts, and clamor from afar. As the horse cut onto Meeting Street, Douglas was greeted by a vision that would terrorize him the rest of his days. The Elling estate was alight against the dark night in roaring, spitting flames. Fire was bursting forth from the east side of the house, licking its way up the walls, reaching its hands skyward, like crackling, roaring calls of prayer. There were people running every which way— bodies emerging and disappearing behind the fog of smoke in a frenzied crush as they tried to help manage the fire. And now, please join me in welcoming Jacqueline Friedland. Hi, Jackie, I look forward to talking with you today. Hi, Carolyn, thank you for having me. So like several of my previous guests, uh, you had a career as a lawyer before turning to fiction. Why did you decide to make that transition? And having decided, how did you go about it? So I always wanted
0: to be a writer. And when I was in college as an English major, my favorite professor sat me down towards the end of my college career when I was telling him that I wanted to get a PhD in English and possibly be a professor, possibly be a writer. He said to me, listen, There's not a lot of jobs out there as a professor. The writing, even if you're excellent, there's no money in it. If you're thinking about any other profession, choose that. Um, My mother also chimed in and said, go to law school. You'll be qualified to do anything. And if you really love writing, you'll always come back to it. But you're never going to go back to law school later. So I said, fine. And I went to law school and I tried to make a go of it. And I just... Couldn't get the bug of writing out of my head. And when I was had been practicing law for a couple of years, I had my first child and I was on maternity leave for a few months. And I thought, okay, this is my chance. I'm going to be responsible and use this time wisely. And I'm going to start my novel now. And um, you know, this is it, I'm going to write my book. And Little did I know that with a brand new infant and, um, you know, being a new mother, it's rather difficult to get any time to do anything. And P.S., you can't write a book in three months. Um, but I did, however, put in enough time that I felt like I had committed myself to writing this novel and I was going to do it and I was going to find time after work and when the baby was sleeping and on the weekends to get something solid completed And um, over the next couple of years, I did that, and I actually did complete a first draft of the novel, and I knew that I was sort of ready to commit more fully. So I transitioned to teaching legal writing um, at Cardoza in New York City, and I had some more free time where I was able to write more. And um, when I got pregnant with my fourth child, I decided that I still was not having enough time. I was still spending a lot of time working on my legal work and not enough time on the writing. So at that point, I left teaching and I went back to get my master's in creative writing at Sarah Lawrence in Bronxville, New York. And um, that was the beginning for me of really dedicating myself full time as a writer. And I haven't looked back for a moment.
1: And was Trouble the Water the first novel you wrote? Troubled Water is the first novel that I wrote, but it was initially a very different story
0: than what it uh, evolved into at the end.
1: <laughs> so what drew you to this story, to this time and place? So when I began the
0: novel, I knew that I wanted to write historical fiction, and I've just always been fascinated by the American South prior to the Civil War. I um, can picture in my head, you know, these these debutante balls and the beautiful plantation homes and the gorgeous dresses and the, the beautiful topography in the South. And then at the same time, right there, you have the perversity of slavery and this horrible system that was supporting this whole um, ostensibly gorgeous society. And I just find that juxtaposition so interesting. And I also find the fact that people were able to, um, quote unquote, own others and go through life like that. I just, I still every day struggle to wrap my head around that. So I felt that if I was going to devote hours and years of my life to a project, this was the right uh, time period and location that I should be focused on.
1: Yeah, it's my last guest. Actually, also wrote about the Deep South, but uh, probably a hundred no, sixty years later than you. And he that was one of the things that he mentioned was that the because he le- grew up in Virginia, he mentioned that there was this what he called this terrible nostalgia for a life that had been so comfortable and yet was in many ways so horrible because it was based on this system of racial inequality.
0: Right. Right.
1: Um, it's very interesting to have those two um, those two factors,
0: you know, back to back with each other like that, where people couldn't have their comforts without destroying the lives of others.
1: Right, exactly, um, and of course, for fiction, that kind of conflict is is very rewarding uh, because that's what we we do. We explore those those sources of conflict and contradiction and how different people respond to them. So although Douglas Elling is not, I think, the main character, uh, he's certainly the first character that we meet and on a par with the main characters. So talk to us a little bit about him. What is going on in that opening scene? So Douglas
0: Elling is actually, I agree, not the main character, but he, on some level, is the main point of the novel. He's the, he was my initial inspiration. He was the first character who came into being in my mind, and the reason was because I had discovered in doing my initial research that the international slave trade had been outlawed in 1808, but it continued for decades afterwards because slavery was still legal. The system of slavery was still legal in the States. And so there were these outlaws and um, what they used to call blackbirders, who were these illegal slave traders, who would still be kidnapping slaves from Africa and smuggling them into the US one way or another. what I started to think about was that the fact that we had the Underground Railroad on land in the U.S. and these heroes who would risk their safety to fight for others, these vigilantes, and what if there had been a person who had the manpower and the resources to go out and do what the Royal Navy was supposed to be doing, but was not, which was patrolling the water and um, intercepting these slave traders? The Royal Navy was out there, but they were basically like lackadaisical in how they were enforcing these laws. And it was sort of, you know, an accepted evil where people would get a slap on the wrist. And I wanted to create a character who actually was doing something. So this is how um, Douglas Elling grew into being in my mind. And when the novel begins, he is on his way home after receiving a threat from uh, local society people that there might be some act of violence happening to his family or his home, and he doesn't know what's going to happen, and he's racing home, and he suddenly has this thought of, no, I just got the threat today. They're not going to act so quickly. Um, You know, I can take my time, and as he sort of slows down and starts to... um, kind of uh, come to grips with, you know, he thinks everything's going to be okay, he starts to smell smoke and hear screams, and he races back to his house and sees his entire home engulfed in these roaring flames, and he's thinking, you know, what has happened and what, how can he live in this society where when all he has tried to do is uh, help other people toward freedom, these acts of retribution and violence are now happening to him and his loved ones, and he's trying to save his family from the flames, and he doesn't know where they are, or if they're in, or if they're out, and he has a couple of the men who work in his home, uh, some free blacks, and also a, a butler, a white butler, find him and tell him that his wife and daughter actually did not make it out, and um, that's the end of the very first chapter. And then you have to find out what happens next.
1: Right. So tell us about Douglas as a person, his background and his outlook on life when we first meet him. Um, He's not an American for starters. Correct. Um, well, he came over from England.
0: He was in sort of the way of college boys came over after finishing university with a friend of his, and this friend, Nigel had cousins in South Carolina. So they went, they visited with the cousins and Douglas meets a young woman named Sarah and, Sarah, and he falls desperately in love with the Sarah Henderson and decides that when Nigel goes home, he's going to stay and he's going to figure out how to make a life with Sarah Henderson. And he ends up marrying her. And he very shortly thereafter, Sarah's father passes away and leaves his entire shipping business to Douglas to manage. Uh, Douglas has promised him on his deathbed that he will take over the business and make it even better and bigger than it was before. And um, so he has this nice little life with Sarah. And he also, his father-in-law, uh, freed all of his slaves in his last Will and Testament when he died. So the slaves ask Douglas uh, that they can stay on and work as free men because they really have nowhere else to go and don't know what to do with themselves after all their years being slaves. So Douglas has come from a place in England where slavery has already been outlawed. It's never really been on his radar in any which way, but he's actually more comfortable not owning men. And so he says to these to the slaves or former slaves that they are free to go or they are free to stay for wages and many choose to stay, uh, because he seems like a kind man. And that's sort of where you have Douglas in the beginning until further events unfold to um get him interested in abolition.
1: And how does he become involved in abolition? So he
0: as now now he's in shipping and import and export and um, he the port of Charleston is—it's a, a huge, bustling industry. Comes in and out all the time, and, and he discovers that there is a law that was passed about two decades earlier called the Negro Seamen Act, which requires um, any ships that come into port have to have their any black sailors who come ashore from those ships, even if they're free men from say, England or from up north. They have to be incarcerated in the local jail until the ship leaves. And not only that, but the ship's captain has to pay the cost of uh, whatever incarcerations occur. So Douglas discovers this and decides that it's just, it's a business problem for him because he thinks that ships that could choose between going to Charleston or going to a a port farther north, where this law does not exist, they will choose to go farther north. And it's also, this is all occurring at a time where steamships and all of the um, uh, technological advances are occurring. So it is possible for a ship now to sail directly to the north from England. Um, And he's worried he's going to lose business. So he goes to some local legislators and says, you know, I think we should make a change. I think this isn't good for business in the port." And he meets with such resistance and such venom that it starts, he starts thinking and he starts to um, see how um, awful this system of slavery is and how deeply entrenched it is and how rigid and inflexible the lawmakers and also the society are. It just, it sort of, it plants a seed and he starts thinking and decides that he does want to do a little bit to help. And get involved, tip his, dip his toe, so to speak, in abolition. And once he starts getting involved, he sort of, he gets, it, it almost becomes, um, like an addiction a little bit where the more he helps people, the, m- the more he wants to help people. And it just grows and grows until the moment where his family, uh, fall victim to this fire. And then he, uh, second guesses everything that he's done because of the harm that has brought to his loved ones.
1: So all of this actually takes place up to 1842. Um, and the story does occasionally return there, uh, as Douglas is today, we would say processing what happened, um, as he remembers the events of his life that lead him up to this point. But the main story actually starts a few years later, when Abigail Milton arrives in Charleston. And she too has a, a story. Um, she is your heroine um so she is the main character but what is her background and what takes her away from her childhood home so poor abby has a complicated background she
0: was born into a middle-class family in england and her father had a furniture shop and um his furniture shop floods and unfortunately prior to the flood he had a lot of debt he was working a lot on credit and after this flood occurs he all the furniture in the shop is destroyed and they this the family loses everything and they're forced to move out of their nice brick home in the city of Liverpool, and they end up in um, a tenement in a, a town called wigan Where Abby's father is able to go work in a cotton mill, and she also and her younger sister are able to work in the cotton mill, and her three brothers are able to go down work down by the docks over there, and even with all of these uh, jobs, and their mother is working as a a, a laundry, doing the laundry in a local inn. Even with all of these jobs, between the debt that they have and just the expense of supporting their family and the the limited amount that they're pay each paid, it's not enough money for them really to survive. So Abby has a wealthy uncle who lives not far away. And uncle offers to give the family a stipend, so to speak, and says, you know, but send Abby to me a couple of times a month to help when I have parties, when I have people for dinner. And Abby goes to do these these jobs for her uncle, and um, it turns out the uncle is a really bad guy. And he believes that because he's supporting his brother's family, he Abby owes him in the form of uh, sexual favors and um, gratification that she wants no part of. Um, he's much older, and he's her uncle, and it's horrifying to her. But he threatens her that if she tells, he will stop giving her family money. And when faced with the the option of her family starving or enduring what her uncle is doing to her, she chooses the latter. But unfortunately, when she's with her family, she is uh, traumatized and so unhappy and impossible to deal with and having tantrums. um, at one point, she cuts off all of her hair because he had, the uncle had mentioned that he likes her hair, and her parents don't know what to do, and they finally come up with the idea that they know this widower who's living in America, and he's so wealthy, and he's living in an empty house, and they have a close connection from many years ago to Douglas, and they- to write to Douglas and ask if maybe Abby could spend a year, her final year of sort of uh, growing into adulthood, living in his on his estate and being trained by a governess and getting ready for a different kind of life, and Douglas, sort of in a moment of uh, where he's not quite himself, says. Sure, send her, and this is this is how Abby ends up in America. And she decides that you know what, she can get away from her uncle. She won't be a burden to her parents, and maybe it is for the best. And off she goes.
1: So um, Charleston is indeed a very different life, and Douglas is. Again, modern expression, not in a good place emotionally when she shows up. Um, what mm-hmm. are her initial reactions and impressions of this new world that she's suddenly thrust into and this person who is officially her guardian? So when she first arrives in Charleston,
0: Charleston itself um, is a great surprise to her. It's loud, and it's colorful, and she's not, she hasn't been so familiar with um, any, any black people, any African Americans back in her town in Wigan. There just weren't many of them, and she certainly is unfamiliar with the system of slavery, so seeing this all immediately after she steps off the boat is an initial shock, and then on top of that, she's supposed to be picked up at the port by Douglas, and she's waiting, and she's tired and she's hungry and she's messy and she just wants somebody to come and get her and nobody shows up. So what she realizes in that moment is that despite the fact that she has such low conscious expectations of what she deserves and what is going to happen to her, deep down she had been hopeful that um, something might be better in America, that she might be treated in a nicer way, that she might have more options and when he doesn't show up it, she sort of berates herself and says, it was stupid of me to hope for better. And she goes off in search of Douglas and she finally finds him at um, his office, which is right near the pier. And um, when she meets him, she thinks he's awful. He's very gruff with her, very brief. And uh, it sort of reinforces the, the thoughts she's just been having. But then she's brought to his house And when she sees the house, she can't get over it. Her first thought is that her family's flat could fit in its entirety on the front porch of Douglas's home. And she decides that barring everything else, she is going to try to enjoy the, the fineries and the, the material luxuries that she's being exposed to in this home and um, whatever else happens, it's sort of up to fate at this point And she's just kind of going to keep her fingers crossed and maybe she will continue to hope a little.
1: So, Apart from anything else, uh, she is being brought into society at a certain point, society as defined in Charleston. And as we already mentioned, this is a novel about the waning days of slavery in the U.S. South, and several of your important secondary characters, uh, especially the Cunningham sisters, Gracie and Cora Ray, and their extended family and friends, in fact, all of the society that Um, Abbey encounters in Charleston are what you would expect. I mean, Abigail and Douglas are Brits, and so they didn't grow up in a slave society, and they don't take it for granted. But the Cunninghams and all the other people that Abbey encounters do. So um, before we get to talking about who they are and how they fit in, I want to ask you if it was difficult to write characters with views so different from those that most people hold today.
0: I would say yes and no. Um, there's a, a concern when you're writing characters like these that you don't want to create um, a caricature or something that's too uh, dramatic in showing how awful these opinions were. Um, and how brutal people could be towards other people. However, if you when you do the research and you learn about the time period, these attributes that could be described as by a current um, modern day reader as sort of um, exaggerated, that they, they're not exaggerated. This is actually how many people behaved and felt. That you know that their slaves were their property, that um, they were going to treat them any which way they wanted, none of, and they weren't going to give it a second thought, and they were going to use and abuse them in any way they wanted. And it sort of, it wasn't even something, it was as interesting to them as, you know, having a cup of coffee. And um, so I wanted to portray this without having people say, that's not possible. That's not what it was really like. It's sort of the the truth is stranger than fiction problem where when you write what actually happened, it's less believable than kind of tamping it down a little bit and saying, um, and you know, having people have complicated thoughts and uh, be a little bit more more than one-dimensional. Um, so on that level, I found it tricky, but what made it a little easier is that there's certain views and problems that I think, people had then that they still have now. So for example, these Cunningham girls are all very fixated on finding their husbands and, uh, their love, love, lives. And, you know, they're, they're young women. And I think that many young women today can get caught up in fashion and boys and dates and pre- preparing for a party and what are you going to wear? And so those kind of, uh, universal, um, themes were easier to weave in and show, okay, yes, here's a girl, Gracie, who's in her late teenage years, and she is getting ready for a party, and she sees something that happens between her mother and a slave, and she doesn't like it, and she has a, a brief moment of, wow, that wasn't nice, but I have a party to be at in 10 minutes, and I'm not ready And I have to figure out what I'm wearing. And I think that that is something that can happen today, you know, um, where you might be watching the news and see something awful that you really don't like, but you've got somewhere to be and you've got your daily life that you're concerned with and your own personal drama. And so you sort of move on, even though, um, you know, you you might, if, if questioned directly about what you just saw in the news, uh, want to do something about it. But then unfortunately, many of us forget or um, don't stay focused on it. So when I approached it that way, it made it easier for me, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, yes it does. Um, I would imagine that for the U.S. South, uh, especially the antebellum South, there's quite a lot of material available. How much research did you need to do for this novel? I did tons and tons
0: of research. I, When I began, I had majored, as I said earlier, in English in college, but I had to pick a concentration within that, and my concentration was U.S. culture and literature, and so I did have a background in U.S. history to a degree, So I sort of knew where to start. But as I began my research, I realized how much I didn't know. And um, I did first, I sort of gave myself a reading tour, and I read novel after novel that was placed in this uh, time period. And I kind of just wanted to see what common themes other authors were all sort of landing on. And um, after that, I then went to primary sources, and I was reading Um, letters from escaped slaves and treatises written by abolitionists and letters that went back and forth between different abolitionist societies and um, journals of slaves who were in captivity and those who were um, right keeping journals as they were escaping. And I actually, there's quite a wealth of nonfiction material out there. If you um, take the time to find it, what actually gave me more trouble was finding things that you wouldn't think about um, when you're initially researching a a period of time. For example, I wanted to have, um, I was initially going to place one of the families on a plantation rather than in the city of Charleston. And, I was, you know, using maps, old maps of Charleston and where Charleston where the plantation was going to be. But then I would started to think if you're moving, if you're going from Charleston out to this plantation in the country, you have to get there. And how, so you're going on a horse and how quickly does a horse travel? And so then I was actually researching, you know, how, how many miles per hour a horse goes. And if, if it has a carriage attached to the back of it, how much that slows it down. And I learned, you know, that they it was far enough away from Charleston to the plantation that I had chosen that um, these the guests would have most likely slept over at the plantation home after the ball, uh, which was a thing that people did at the time. It was common. However, uh, sleepovers complicate plots. And so um, I actually ended up moving everybody into the city of Charleston so that the interaction could happen more easily and more quickly and people could kind of come and go and see the other characters these were just not things that I would I realized when I first began the project that were going to be sort of stumbling blocks that I had to figure ways around
1: Yes. No, I understand. Absolutely. I have literally pages and pages of notes about, you know, how far it was from this place in Russia to that place in Russia and how quickly you could travel by horse and how quickly you could travel by horse if you were a professional cavalry officer and how quickly you could travel if you were just an ordinary person and how fast an army could move. And I mean, it's just endless. And that's just one thing. There's all the food and the clothes and the...
0: (laughs) The what a house would look like. The I mean,
1: yeah, the hygiene. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. endless. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that stuff doesn't show up in history books. And Anyway, right. moving on. <laughs> 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 so speaking of famous novels about the U.S. South, uh, you're Cora Ray, and there's a running joke in the novel that she wants to be called Cora because I think she thinks it's more sophisticated and everybody else forgets and calls her Ray all the time. Um, but she is a kind of Scarlett O'Hara in her personality. Correct. Yes. So, and she has designs on Douglas. So what what's going on there? And because we're... Uh, we still have a fair amount of ground to cover. If you could also talk a little bit about her relationship with Gracie, that would be great. Okay.
0: So Cora Ray is the daughter of Court Cunningham, who is one of the wealthiest plantation owners. And he's in in the city of Charleston uh, for the social season, but he has a plantation outside of town uh, that he owns and uh, profits from all year long. And um, Cora Ray is... A beautiful, stunning, redheaded girl who um, sort of can charm the pants off anyone. And she, as a younger girl, met Douglas, and he was already engaged to be married to Sarah. But she just—he just struck her, and she fell for him. And she is a girl who is used to getting whatever she wants, whenever she wants. And she is her parents' favorite child; they dote on her. Um, and when Douglas is uninterested, it only fuels the fire and makes her, uh, more committed to somehow catching his eye, catching his attention. But then he marries Sarah and it's sort of game over for her, except that, um, unfortunately then Sarah is, uh, perishes in the fire. And now Cora Ray thinks that it's her chance to get the Douglas that she was denied initially And it's sort of just because she is, it's almost like a game to her. She can't be denied anything. And so, um, he's this, this interest to her and she's not going to settle for anyone else. It must be Douglas. If it's not Douglas, she won't have anyone else. And she's going to do whatever she needs to, to make him fall for her. And when, um, her younger sister, Gracie, who's sort of, um, the sweet one in the family um not quite as pretty as her older sister but still a nice looking young woman with prospects um um, cora ray decides that she's going to use gracie to help her get douglas because gracie has struck up a friendship with abigail after abigail arrived in the us and now um cora ray thinks this is going to be her in to sort of get back on douglas's radar and figure out what's going on in his home and figure out what she needs to do to manipulate him into falling for her in return.
1: Yes. The other important member of the Cunningham household is Clover, uh, who becomes kind of the symbol of everything that's wrong with this society. And it's for those of us who know anything about um, antebellum Southern history, it's pretty obvious what has Mrs. Cunningham upset with Clover. Uh, But tell us about her, Um, Clover herself, I mean, because we're talking only about the white characters. And of course, there are a whole cast of African American characters who are equally important to the story. So tell us about Clover, what she wants, and what happens with her as much as you want to reveal.
0: Sure. So Clover is a young woman who was born into slavery and she's uh she belongs to the Cunningham and unfortunately for her she's quite pretty and um has copied the, the eye of her master Mr Cunningham and now she's pregnant and um She decides that if she, she rightfully thinks if she gives birth to her child uh, while living with the Cunninghams, most likely the child is going to be sold off because otherwise uh, Mrs. Cunningham will notice the resemblance of the baby to her husband. So as you said, this was quite common in that day and age, unfortunately. And, Clover decides that her child, she's not going to be separated from her child and she is going to escape. And um this is brought to the attention of Douglas and he's asked to help, but Douglas has sort of sworn off any activity in with involving himself in abolition because of the harm that it had brought to his own family, and he feels that he didn't make enough of a difference when he was doing abolition to justify. Any of the harm that um, he might bring on others should he continue, and um, um, he he really struggles with whether or not to help Clover. And Clover has decided already, regardless of whether she has help, she is going. And she is, like you said, she's sort of my my representative of the slave community in in South Carolina. And she's as she's my favorite character in the book. But she's also a sort of a representative for, for that population and serves as both an individual and a
1: symbol. I want to give, leave listeners with the impression that she's just a symbol. I mean, she is a fully rounded character, just as the others are. and um, But she does, ha- because it's her immediate crisis that she is, I think, six or seven months pregnant at the point... Um, where she makes this decision. And so it's not like she can stick around for another month and think about it. She either gets out now or she doesn't get out at all. Exactly. So this novel is not only a social commentary, though. It's also a romance. Um, What draws Abby to Douglas and vice Mm -hmm. versa after their initial uh, negative impressions of each other? Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: So um, Abby is very slowly drawn to Douglas. As she gets to know him, she sees him uh, sort of reaching out to her and being kinder than she initially thought he was. And she still, though, is reluctant and sort of not interested in being around him. She's wary of men in general after her experiences with her uncle. And she's most interested in just creating a life of independence for herself. But over time, as she is continually exposed to Douglas, she starts to notice his absence when he's not around and sort of, uh, bemoan it. And, um, as she, something occurs in the, in the house that brings to her attention, the fact that he was at one point involved in abolition and suddenly it's a if her, her eyes are open and she sees him in a very new light. And, um, becomes very curious about him and the more that she gets to know the more she wants to know and as far as what draws Douglas to Abby he's initially um, you know very reserved with her as well and he has sort of a moment of awakening after something happens at the house where he realizes how he's not behaving in the way that his deceased wife would have been proud of and he's not he's not doing right by his friends This is his his Abby's father was his good friend when they were younger. Um, Abby's father is much older than Douglas, but they sort of grew up together like cousins. And he realizes he's not doing right by Samuel, Abby's father, either, uh, by not putting in some time to get to know his daughter and see to find out why she arrived so unhappy and what it is that she needs to um, sort of change her outlook on life. Um, the same thing kind of happens to Douglas, where the more he gets to know her, uh, the more interesting she becomes, primarily because she is so different from anyone else that he has known.
1: So what would you like readers to take away from Trouble the Water? Um,
0: Well, hopefully, as with other historical fiction, readers would learn uh, new information about a period of our history. Um, But most of all, I think I would like readers to take away hope about um, human behavior and to see that even in the face of tragedy and uh, hard behavior, there are others who are focused on helping. There's actually a, um, I, if you remember the, the children's TV uh, personality, Mr. Rogers. Um, he had this bit that he always said, look for the helpers. Whenever you see something awful, um, if you find there's always other people who were there helping and when you look for the helpers the rescuers the heroes it leaves you with a sense of hope about human decency and that's what i would like readers to take with them
1: that sounds like a wonderful message what about you are you working on something new now i am i'm i'm just about finishing a i'm very close uh a
0: contemporary novel um that takes place in new york city and is um Essentially, about whether it's possible to be in love with two people at once.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Jackie, and I wish you all success with that second novel. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I've been talking with Jacqueline Friedland about her novel, Trouble the Water. Find out more about her at www.jackelinfreedland.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.